Welcome to Way Too Seriously, the podcast where we watch kids' movies and then take them way too seriously. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this week we watched and we'll be talking about Labyrinth. Jan, do you want to tell us a bit about this movie? Yes, I do. Labyrinth is a 1986 movie. It was directed by the late, great Jim Henson. The screenplay is by Terry Jones. The story is by Dennis Lee and Jim Henson. Yes, that Dennis Lee of Alligator Pie fame, and yes, that Terry Jones of Monty Python. (laughs) It also involved George Lucas of, you know, Star Wars. In what, can I interrupt to say I didn't look it up at all. He was in the trailer. In what capacity was George Lucas involved? Was he a producer? He was a producer. Okay. It stars David Bowie, Jennifer Connelly, Toby Freud, as well as the voices and character performances of Warwick Davis, Kenny Baker, Dave Galtz, Frank Oz, Steve Whitmore, etc., etc., all of the Muppet performers that you've ever heard of. <laughs> Including Kevin Clash of Elmo fame. Including him. So, Paul, what the heck is Labyrinth about? Teenage Sarah. Teenage Sarah. <laughs> Teenage girl, I don't know. Teenager? <laughs> teenager. Teenager Sarah is left at home to babysit her infant brother and is resentful. She inadvertently calls upon the Goblin King to take away her brother and discovers that her imaginary goblin world is real. Sarah follows the goblins into the labyrinth which she has 13 hours to solve before her brother becomes a goblin forever then she does solve it (laughs) the end this is one of these like there's a lot of this kind of plot there's a lot of this kind of story right where like she has a goal and there are obstacles and it's a real i forget the phrase for it but it's like a chain link yeah daisy chain a daisy chain plot where like there's just a bunch of stops in the labyrinth that she solves one by one and they are just in the way of her getting from point a to point b yeah and you have you know david bowie doing his david bowie thing david bowie sings sometimes Mm -hmm. so objectively speaking how good of a movie is labyrinth i want to start with the effects Okay. And that's like, it's Jim Henson and it's puppetry. And it is, I think, so good. The puppets, the effects, the world in the visual sense, like not, we'll talk about it in a second, but I'm not talking about the like uh, imaginative world building in a story sense. I'm talking about like the set and the character design and the way everything looks I think is so good I think that the puppets are good the character design is amazing 
some of the execution, like the uh, puppets where they take all their body parts off, yeah. is kind of some bad green screen, blue screen effects. That is, in a number of ways, a weak moment in the movie, yeah. I would say. And also the set, like the actual labyrinth is... And maybe this is because it's this many years later, is a bit cheap looking. Like the actual walls and stuff uh, look pretty prop walls. At moments, I really think that that is effective for the, like, it's this unreal world. Mm, you may be right. I think it's all imaginary and yet not imaginary. And so the set being kind of surreal in the sense that it looks like a set. <laughs> I think that's entirely appropriate. Hmm. Okay, maybe you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. As soon as you started saying that, I was like, oh yeah, that might be right. I'm thinking especially Hoggle and Ludo, and to a lesser extent, uh, Sir What's-His-Name. Mm. But Hoggle, it looks amazing. <laughs> and that his face is just a puppet. Yeah. Not just, but like, it's a, it's a puppet face. Yeah. And do I assume that it's Warwick Jones inside? Warwick Davis? Warwick, sorry. Do I assume that it's Warwick Davis is his um, body? I think so. In any case, I have seen some behind the scenes thing and I know that his head, like as a puppet head, mm. he looks amazing. And the design of it looks amazing. And Ludo looks amazing. And so many aspects of this. I think this is uh, a really visually engaging movie and it's to me is like you see you know it's hard to put your mind back and not know what you know but like the Muppet Show puppets are pretty cool and pretty impressive but this is doing something so different from that and Dark Crystal had already come out when this came out but mm-hmm. this is like aiming for something so different from the Muppets and I think 90% hitting it yeah, I agree. I agree. It's there's other aspects of the design like that where like she is falling down a whole bunch of hands. Oh, yeah. And they talk to her and the hands form faces and all these different faces and they're all just hands. Human hands doing it and it's phenomenal how well they do that and the I think that's the direction, that's the design, that's just a clever thing. And that's not puppetry at all, it's just literal hands. Yep. And like, on the same token, this movie, and I know a little bit of uh, background about it, but the, like, contact juggling, which is what David Bowie, is not actually David Bowie's hands, but what the Goblin King does with the spheres that he rolls over his hand that he moves back and forth. Uh, basically, the the person who is the hands of David Bowie invented contact juggling, basically. Mm-hmm. And on the strength of this movie, it became a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it was not a thing until this movie. But it looks so weird and cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, 30 years later, it still looks weird and cool. And so much of this movie does. Yeah. And I will admit, I'm probably tainted by nostalgia. But only a little. Or only partly. 
There's so many moments in this movie that are visually striking that have stuck in my mind. And then when I watch it again, I'm like, no, this deserves to have stuck in my mind. Yeah, it's true. Especially visually. Mm-hmm. It's uh, not super well acted. Like, no. I don't think that Jennifer, Jennifer Connelly does her best, but it's she's a child. And there's definitely some moments of very stilted acting. Yeah. And she seems... I think there are moments where this really works for the movie, and there are moments it works less well. She seems like... Uh, a little out of her depth. Yeah. I think there are moments where that really works, actually. But she's, you know... She... she I don't know anything. I don't like. Is this her first movie? It. She acts as if it's her first movie. Yeah. She acts as if it's her first acting role. Yeah. And like, honestly, a lot of the time that's kind of appropriate for her character. Yeah. But yeah, she does not have a ton of complex nuance as an actress in this. Yeah. Exactly. And even like, even some of the the puppets and the other things are. It's not the most subtle of performances. It's pretty over the top. Yeah. And there's times when it kind of grates on me, I must say. And frankly, even David Bowie. Yeah. uh, He's a compelling performer. But as an actor, you know, as an actor, he's a pretty great singer. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, like. Yeah. Yeah. So non-objectively, how much do you enjoy this movie? I enjoy it a lot. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it very many times, but I saw it at like a formational age. I don't know how old I was. If it's eight, 86, I was four when it came out, so I couldn't have watched it then. Um, and I, but I haven't seen it many times as an adult. Like maybe this is my third time watching it since I was a child. Second yeah. time watching it since I was a child. And I'm counting teenager as not a child like i watched it when i was little <laughs> and i've maybe watched it twice more so i have so much affection for it because there's so many moments that really stuck in my mind and then mm-hmm. i watched them and they're just as compelling yeah absolutely i totally had a crush on jennifer Connolly. yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> so i enjoyed it as a child like, she was so, I don't know, teenager, you know. Yeah, totally. Old teenager, so beautiful. Um, And I still have affection for the movie that comes from my childhood affection. Though even watching, even like putting that aside, I think there's a lot about it that's really engaging. I love, my favorite part, actually, of the movie is Ludo, the giant monster who can talk to rocks, like... He's so interesting. Yeah. And I love his character. I love it. How about you? What? How do you, non-objectively, how much do you enjoy this movie? I enjoy it. I I don't know if I have as much of affection for you. I think it scared me as a kid quite a lot. Hmm. I don't know when exactly I saw it, but it was scary. However, um, I had a memory resurface while watching it this time that... One of the very first uh, 
I've been a writer for a long time, and I wrote things when I was a kid. One of the earliest books I wrote um, was called Amy and the Labyrinth, <laughs> and it was, you know, based on my memories of this movie, I think. Right. <laughs> it was very much about a girl who went through a labyrinth, and I didn't really remember that the movie specifically I had, like, I had watched a long time ago and had general impressions of it. And so that was what it was based on. And so watching it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I basically wrote fanfic of this movie <laughs> <laughs> without fully realizing it. Um, so I still have a lot, like, there's still quite a few moments in it where I'm just like, oh, this is like the farting swamp is pretty <laughs> gross. And like the, yeah, just some of the puppetry is creepy. Yeah. And I don't love that, but I love the David Bowie stuff. I love the songs. I love the Yeah, there's a lot good about it too. I love um when I went back, I I fell asleep during this movie cuz I was just really tired. Oh, okay. And so I went back and watched rewatched the ending so we could record about it. And and then I kind of I noticed things in her room. And Mm -hmm. so I went back to the beginning and watched again. And like everything in the labyrinth is already in her room. Yeah. I noticed that this time watching it. That I had noticed before. Like, of course, you notice that the girl, the girl in the white dress is there. And there are a few things that they really focus on. But then there's like background stuff like Ludo is in her bedroom. A stuffed version of Ludo is in her bedroom. And so is Hoggle. Yeah. So is Hoggle. They, they like slowly pan past like a labyrinth game like the one with marbles and then several books of which are wizard of oz alice in wonderland through the looking glass yeah things like that that are very like this exact thing that's about to happen and so you see that she's obsessed with this stuff and it's just really clever set design Mm-hmm. it really is and it leads me to questions that are maybe uh Serious questions. Yeah, so let's let's get into it. Let's get into the way portion of our show. And I want to start not with the problematics of the movie, but with what we were just talking about. Because, okay, we went a little past uh, the objective quality without saying something that was on my mind. That is, the writing is not amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> considering especially the people involved and one of the weirdnesses of it is the ending where like suddenly they're all in her room and like having a big dance party in her room including like the goblins yeah that's a weird ending Mm -hmm. and then when you put that with all the things that she meets in the labyrinth are already in her room it makes me say Did she go to a labyrinth? Like, I said in my summary, she discovers that her imaginary world of goblins is real. But, like, is it, though? Yeah. I don't think that that is nearly as straightforward as I put it in my summary of the plot. I think it would be easy. There's lots of evidence to make a case that she does not travel to a magical world. She symbolically, like, deals with some of her issues in a psychotic break? Or, I don't know. 
Yeah, I feel like there is definite evidence that he doesn't go there at all, that it's just all in her head, that it's a dream, possibly. It's, uh, because, yeah, it just exists outside of her. It it exists already in her room. Yeah, and, like, that she tells this story to the baby. Does he have a name? Toby. Toby, which is his real name? His real name is also Toby. Okay. I, I just couldn't remember whether Toby was the actor's name or the babe or the character's name, but it's both. She tells Toby this story that is true without her knowing that it's true. Well, why would it be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And the Goblin King is in love with her? Or is he? Or like, and our kids said this too, that like, what happened before this movie? <laughs> right? They thought when she goes into the goblin world, well, I can't remember which of our kids it was, but one of them was like, oh, this is what happened before the movie. Because they thought that, like, she has had some experience with the Goblin King before the movie starts. Mm-hmm. Right? And she doesn't act surprised at all to meet him. There's a lot... And all of that is just to say, I don't think any of that is plot holes i'm not saying like they they didn't notice this i'm saying like all of that is evidence that her reaction is not dorothy and oz i can't wait to, i wish i could get back home or even alice like curiouser and curiouser she takes it all in stride yeah and that's I have two thoughts about that. And one is what I'm saying right now, that it's like evidence that it's not real. And then I have a completely different uh, thought about it, which is just to say how much I appreciate a story where especially like compared to The Wizard of Oz and to a lesser extent Alice in Wonderland, that like all this amazing cool adventure is happening to me. I wish it wasn't and I could just go home to my life is, uh, you know... Uh, a trope that this movie does not step in. She wants to save her brother, but she also is like... Yeah, she is enjoying herself Enjoying herself and adventuring. And yeah. I like that. But at the same time as I like it, it's kind of evidence that it's not real. Right? Yeah. Does it matter that it's not real? Only in terms of the themes. Okay. Right? We've talked in other movies, and I think especially of The Little Prince. Like, we've Mm. talked in other movies about where levels of reality and maybe it wasn't really real. And I have sometimes been on the side of, like, none of it's real. It's a story. And there are different kinds of reality. But in this movie, I want to push a little bit on what we think the movie is telling us is literal and what we think the movie is telling us is imaginary. Because I think that changes how we read and understand what the movie's about. Okay. I think I understand what you mean. Because in one sense, sure, none of it's real. Uh, There isn't really a Sarah. (laughs) Right? of course. (laughs) Jennifer Connelly is pretending. uh, With mixed success. Um, But in another sense, like, within the story, I think... 
Like, the meaning of the story, it's about adolescence and adulthood and responsibility and, uh, right? Yeah, it's a coming-of-age story. I think it means something different if the experiences that lead her from childhood to adulthood really happen to her. I think it means something different than if, uh she imagines them because if she's imagining them she's retreating into a world of imagination that's dissociating from reality that was a sign of her childhood to begin with so at the end she's kind of given up on adulthood and if it really happens to her then she's embracing challenges that people that the adult world hasn't prepared her for which is a metaphor for what adulthood really is that childhood and the things that adults tell you don't prepare you for the challenges that you're going to face and she adapts herself and learns and grows and internalizes the things that she's learned and that's what is kind of symbolically meant by them all showing up in her room at the end i think it just means something different As long as she believes that it's real, though, then it is real. If she uh, is convinced that this really happened to her, then the changes that happened to her are what happened. Except that what we... They're literal changes. Except that where we start the movie is with her... uh, Living in a fantasy world. Living in a fantasy world, um, neglecting the pragmatic and boring real responsibilities of the real world in favor of her fantasy world and if the fantasy world is real that means she's kind of brought the reality she brought those realities into uh intersection with each other and she's kind of grown up by being forced to recognize the real dangers and the real consequences of her actions and she can bring that fantasy world into the real world and use it to you know make herself to to guide her and help her cope with the pragmatic realities of the real world but if it's all a fantasy even if she believes it's real she's just going further into this childhood fantasy and and removing herself further from the real responsibilities of the real world Okay. I think I, I think I see what you're getting at. And I think that uh, does it matter? Or do we just have to decide? If yeah. it's a better story, if she didn't imagine it, then that is the story. The fact that yeah. she has these things in her room, the fact that she has a storybook that is called Labyrinth, that is like the script to this movie... Um, that's all just uh, evidence that it's, it really exists. It's all just like it leaked through to some writer who wrote about it and kids fall for the trap by repeating the words. And that's how the Goblin King gets his goblins is by <laughs> kids reading this book and falling for the trap of saying, you know, take me, take my sibling, whatever. Yeah, and I do think exactly what you said. Uh, The story exists in our interpretation of it, and we do have to make up our mind what we think is a more persuasive reading. 
And what I'm trying to work through is not what is really happened to Sarah. It's what reading do I find more compelling? <laughs> yeah. Right? So clearly the real war that that this really happened to her is more compelling to you. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. That's what it seems like you're saying is that it makes more sense and it makes more... I think it's a more optimistic reading. More optimistic. There is a point that we haven't mentioned yet, which is uh, her. she has a stepmother, mm-hmm. and her mother has clearly died. Mm-hmm. Her mother was an actress. Yeah, was, and that's subtle. It is. Like, you see in her room these playbills and this whole, like, all over her mirror are, me- are memories of her mother. Yeah. And so you have this idea that she's acting. She is memorizing the lines of the play Labyrinth and speaking them to an owl in her yard. Right. Or in the park. She's trying on her mom's dresses and trying to bring back the memory of her mother by being this character. Mm -hmm. And so, and the child that's been born is her half-brother, not her mother's child. And so she feels disconnected from him. Mm-hmm. And she, so she retreats into this world where the the world that her mother lived in is real. The yeah. the pretend world of her plays are a real place that she can deal with her feelings about this child that has come into her life. And she has a bit of a childish perspective on that, where the her mother's world is the imaginary world of her mother's imaginary play, not the real world of the theater. Yes, exactly. So I think if you take that reading, then it can be all in her head and yeah. still have emotional impact. I think it does have emotional impact. Yeah. I just think that what the impact is is different. Yeah. It's like... I always like it when a movie has more than it seems to. Mm-hmm. And this movie does. Can I talk about something just, like, crazy? Please do. Here's the thing. One of the things this movie is known for is David Bowie's package. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you for a sec to say it was not as dramatic as I was anticipating. Okay, go on. It, the thing is, is... Because of that, I was paying attention to it, and I will not uh, deny um, that it, he gets more revealing as the movie goes. Hmm. When he first appears in Sarah's house, he is heavily dressed and heavily robed, and there's nothing revealing about him. And as we go through the movie... His pants get tighter. He gets more revealed. He's more of his chest shows that by the end when she he says she says you have no power over me. He's in quite revealing clothing, you know, tight and whatnot. And I wondered if that was on purpose and if that was a, that's like we can see that as a metaphor for like this sexual predator. Is it like hmm or even the diminishment of power? Yeah. I don't know. That's what I was going to ask. Do you think it's more... I mean, like, sexual predator, maybe, because he's so symbolic. Yeah. He is a sexual predator in the sense of, like, he's super old and, like, is in love with... 
yeah. Sarah is I, a bit. I want to like. A thing. I just. I don't disagree with that. I just think because it's also symbolic and metaphorical that I think like he's not a sexual predator. He's a symbolic representation of frightening sexuality. You know. I think he can be both. Sure. Um. But like, yeah, one of the. Hmm. 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 It, it it does seem like there's two very different ways of reading. If he gets more, if his clothing gets more revealing through the movie, it could be that as she symbolically moves through the labyrinth, the goal at the end of the labyrinth is like a, a sexually mature man, mm-hmm. and she starts off being symbolically a child, and ends off being symbolically. Uh, a symbolic sexual partner for him or him being a symbolic sexual partner for her yes actually and her being his equal and then better than him because she says that important line of you have no power over me and if he becomes like this symbolic representation of frightening adult sexuality that she's like compelled to move towards through the whole movie and then when she reaches it the moment of truth is is she going to let it uh control and undermine her and decide what she's going to do or is she going to take that power and say no i'm now your equal so he becomes more uh visually uh explicitly sexual as the movie goes on because that symbolically is is heightening as the movie goes on mm-hmm. and maybe that means that it is actually both at the same time that it also is about he starts off very protected and very powerful and she's this child and he's this like powerful goblin king and she's this real world uh naive teenager mm-hmm. early teens and she ends he's diminished at this day like his Mm-hmm. He's exposed in any case, whether that is diminishing or not. It's when he's exposed that she's able to confront him as an equal. Yes, exactly. That's all very interesting. It is. So we've talked a lot about the themes and general seriousness of this movie. Do we want to get into some of the problematic elements? Sure. What do you think are some of them well i think you touched on one which is and which is david bowie as a sexual romantic possible link for jennifer Connolly is weird and gross yeah it's creepy and like i just a second ago was like but it's also metaphorical but it's also not metaphorical yeah. like he's in love with her is is textual at the beginning and then they have their big romantic dance and he's like much older than she is yeah exactly and that's inappropriate mm-hmm. even though symbolically her it's about her being unprepared for adulthood you're still putting on your on the screen this like what is she 15 16 maybe mm-hmm and, like, how old was he at the time? 
mid thirties, forty, something like that. Yeah. So like that's a problematic pairing, to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that it it is metaphorical, but just having it on the screen there is creepy. Yeah, and it it says something about old men and little girls and that's this thing that we don't really want to to show and to say and I don't like it. Yeah, and although she ends by pushing against it, a yeah. lot of the movie kind of assumes that she's the object of desire for him mm-hmm. and that that's if not necessarily appropriate, definitely like expected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you know, standard. It's even like tropic. Yeah. Deliberately by the movie. And like eh. <laughs> However, I do give this movie props for her being so strong, her reclaim her claiming her power. That being the theme of the movie is a young girl coming into power. Mm-hmm. And uh and like you said before, she's not Innoc- so innocent and like uh, wide-eyed in this in the face of the labyrinth that she doesn't just like go headfirst into it and yep. make decisions and make stupid decisions, but also just like I decide that this door is the door I'm going through. I go through it with confidence, and I fall down a hole. It is one and... of the things that she is so decisive. Yeah, it makes her really fun to watch. Exactly, and that is a. It's a nice trait in a fictional female character to have sure. is this decisiveness. Um, this movie is basically all dudes except for her. All yep. of the puppets she comes across, all of them are male. Except and like, the junk woman. Except the junk woman, yeah. Would it have killed them to have some more female puppets? Like, yeah. It was a bit, yeah. Bit and much. we've talked about this before, like, Jim Henson has a gender problem. Yeah, Jim Henson does have a gender problem. Sad to say. He was a genius. No doubt about it. But there, yeah, are some gender issues in Jim Henson movies. Yeah, for sure. That was the main other thing I wanted, I would have drawn out if you hadn't, is that, like, there's her stepmother. Did they, like, does this movie pass the Bechdel test? I maybe it does actually because yeah, the junk she woman, she's her, her stepmother, and she her talk about her being irresponsible. They talk about her babysitting, but the the conversation is not. It touches on the her brother for a little bit, but a lot of the conversation isn't about her brother at all. It's about her yeah. and her mother, her stepmother. I mean, wanting to go out. Uh and then the her and the junk woman. Their conversation isn't about any... The junk woman doesn't have a name, I guess. Nope, she doesn't. So it does pass the Bechdel test, but that's such a low bar. And those two, the stepmother and the junk woman, are the only two female characters other than Sarah that I can think of. I don't think there's any others. I'm not actually sure the stepmother has a name. Does she? No, I don't think she does either. So it doesn't pass the Bechdel test then... They have to have names. Um, Those are both such small parts. Not just small in terms of their uh, 
screen time, but in terms of their significance to the story. Yeah, very little significance. Like, her dead mother has much more significance to the movie than the stepmother who's on the screen. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it just could have been solved with a couple more of the puppets being female instead of male. Yep. Um, is it good? Is it seriously good? I think it's good. I think it has its moments... I said, and we moved past it quickly. I would, I would take the fiery, the fireies, the those puppets who take their heads off. Yeah, I would could stand to just cut that sequence completely. Absolutely. But other than that, it is such a visually compelling movie. Even when the story doesn't quite make sense, it makes emotional sense, <laughs> and it keep it. I think it's good. Yeah. I'll agree with it. I think it's good. I don't think it's, like, the greatest ever, but, yeah, I think it's good. I think it's better than Dark Crystal. I don't think I've even seen Dark Crystal, to be honest. Maybe we should watch Dark Crystal someday. Maybe we should watch Dark Crystal someday. So, is it seriously good? I don't think it is. Why not? But, because of the gender issues and the weird David Bowie and her issues, but... But it's got a lot of good going for it. So I think I would come out on the side of medium. Yeah. Seriously I'm, medium? I'm comfortable with that for exactly the same reasons. I, yeah. Okay. So Labyrinth. Good, but seriously medium. All right. Well, if you have thoughts about Labyrinth, if you think Dark Crystal's better than Labyrinth, I just threw that out as a one-second thing. But if you want to argue about it, if you think the fireys are the best part of this movie if you want to talk back to us you can find us on twitter at wtscast you can send us an email way too seriously cast at gmail.com you can find us on reddit and facebook and instagram and let us know what you know talk to us there because we're there mm-hmm uh, if you like this show and the things that we do and you want us to keep making stuff uh, and you want to support us, please do support us by liking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash clockworkscast. We are having uh, getting really close to our 100th episode of this show. We'll have kind of an extra special little episode. If you have any questions, any comments, anything you want us to answer on that episode, tweet to us, send us an email, contact us in all the ways Paul just said, and we'll include your comments on that show. Yes. So it's coming up within the next uh, month or so. Yeah. I'm not keeping track. I think this is 95, but it's somewhere like that. Yeah. (laughs) Somewhere in the mid 90s now. Alright, uh, well, I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. And you remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of the voodoo. Voodoo? You do! <laughs> <laughs>